Men, we're under attack. On every side, evil forces encircle us and they desire to tear down and destroy that which we stand upon. Our families and our faith, our forefathers are being overthrown on every side. And just as in the days of Isaiah, we are witnessing that justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar off. Truth is fallen in the streets. And just as it is today, the reason is that there is no man to be found. The question is, how long will we allow this injustice to take place? How long will we relinquish the removal of righteousness? How far will we allow truth to fall in our streets? Where are the men of courage called to fight for the faith? Where are the mighty men who will raise a fist and declare, ENOUGH! Where are the fearless few who race towards giants, who swing jawbones, who crumble walled cities, who plague evil rulers, and who walk on the water? Where are the men who carry crosses? There's no refuting that something must be done as enough is enough, but too often we look at our neighbor. We point to the pastor or we depend upon the deacon to be that man, and as a result of our pointing passive fingers, Truth has fallen in our streets. There's no intercessor to be found in our day. But what if? What if God's plan for every man was to take that stand? What if each man were willing to be God's man in the battle? What if God has called you to be the one to charge the enemy's camp? What if he has commissioned you to boldly believe and fight fearlessly on his behalf? Well, maybe you're thinking, I, I could never. I'm, I'm not strong enough. I, I, I don't know enough. I'm a nobody going nowhere. But consider the explanation of through whom men are called to be valiant that we find in Psalm 60, verse 12. And it says, Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. We are calling all men who are ready to return to the resolute and rigid righteousness of our faith. Men who possess a power and carry a courage to stand for God's word in a world bent on destroying it. We're going to go through the required, required resolution, the requirements of resolution. And so I'd like to paint a picture for you. See if this sounds familiar. The country is completely and utterly divided, humiliated, and bent on self-destruction. God's people are sinful. They lack faith. They're full of complaining. They lack commitment. They are fearful and they doubt God. Everything the church has ever known for generations is now fallen away. The traditions, the comforts, the way it's always been done are gone. The old leadership of the nation, the church, has been removed. And the church has been removed, leaving the people with a lack of sense of direction. The days ahead appear to be filled with strife, struggle, turmoil, and tribulation, and fighting is all but certain in the future. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Does this not describe the world we live in today? Does this not describe the United States of America and the church? Can we all agree? You, you can say amen. We are at a crossroads. Do we see that? We are at a crossroads, an intersection, where two things can happen here. 
2020 is an intersection. 2020 is a crossroads. And yet, as insanely descriptive as this is for the U.S. of A., would you believe this isn't about the U.S. of A.? This is the state of Israel. This is the state we find Israel in at a point in their history. And so after having uh, hesitantly left Egypt, Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years, right? They're a divided nation, and they wander for 40 years in the, in the, in the wilderness. We find that there's two camps that go around in the wilderness. There's the camp that doubts God and sins and ultimately will die in the wilderness. And there's the camp that believes God at his word and moves forward. We find that Israel, God's people, were constantly sinning, right? Idols and and on and on, constantly sinning. They had no faith in God's ability. They were uncommitted to God. They feared every little hiccup and they doubted God's providence. Everything that Israel had ever known about serving God was left behind in Egypt. Their comforts of home, their daily bread, their traditions, their comforts, all of that was removed in Egypt. And at the end of their trek through the wilderness, we find that Moses has passed away and so has a generation of people. All dead and gone and left behind in the wilderness. And so that left the people of Israel in a disarray, right? They're, they're at an intersection. What comes next? They're lacking leadership. They're lacking a sense of direction. And the days ahead were guaranteed to be full of struggle, strife, turmoil, tribulation, and, and fightings, right? As they go into the Canaan conquest, God says, you're going to fight, 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 fight. The days ahead were not going to be easy. And in Israel, something absolutely had to be done and someone had to do something, now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I read this part of the Bible, right, we all, we all know the Egypt wilderness part. When you get to the wilderness, and, and Moses dies, and, and Joshua comes next, how often do we read this and we think, oh, finally, finally the wilderness is done. Now we can actually get somewhere. Now what comes next is easy. Next comes God's promises. This should be easy. And do you know that this is actually the hardest part? This is actually, what comes next is actually the hardest part, Right? So in reality, at the point of promise, the real struggle had only just begun. If Israel wanted what God had guaranteed to them, if they wanted to be healed as a nation, if they wanted the prosperity and the success promised by God, if they wanted to obtain God's promises, it was going to require someone stepping up and someone holding God to his word. There was a crossroad. There was an intersection. There was a line drawn in the sand that either this nation will fall under... Or this nation will rise up. This is where we find Israel after leaving the wilderness. And this is exactly where we're at. Do we see the parallel here? This is exactly where we're at in America in 2020. This is exactly where we're at in the church in 2020. And so, men, I'd like to say this. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. Just like in the days of Joshua, our nation, our churches, our families were at a crossroads. We're at an intersection where someone must do something. Are we, are we willing to be resolute, to be solid as men and to stand and say, I, 
I will grab a hold. I will rise up. I will lead. I will be the man. I will take God and hold him to his word. I believe that God has chosen me for such a time as this. I firmly believe that I, I am the one who needs to do something. I firmly believe that God is calling me, not my neighbor, not my pastor, not the deacon, not the guy down the road. God is calling me to step up at this intersection and to lead and be that man. Because guys... Until we place where this, uh, until we place this as a reality in our lives, until we realize that God is pointing His finger at us, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. Imagine if Joshua had our attitude, right? Well, someone else will step up. Well, that guy's led before. Well, what about Aaron? What about the? Joshua had to say, "I, I will step up. I will be the man." And that's, guys, that's where we're lacking. That's the problem. Everyone's looking at someone else. Everyone's pointing at someone else. Us. We. Me. Everyone point to yourself. Poke it right in the chest. Me. I am the one God is calling. I am the one who needs to step up and lead. As long as we're convinced that God is calling someone else to be the solution, to be the mighty man, you'll let everything you've heard and everything you're going to hear today go in one ear and out the other because you think it's for someone else. And so I can't speak for anyone else, and maybe I'm a little biased because I like the guy's name, but when I read of Joshua in the Bible, I always think of this big burly guy. Does anyone else think of this big burly guy? You know, he's got to be like 17 foot tall, three, six feet wide. Like, he's just a big burly guy, right? Maybe that's an exaggeration. But we think of this big burly guy, this big soldier of a man, big and strong, who towers over and does all the things. And if you grew up in church, you probably saw this in kids' books, right? This is how they, this is how they always paint Joshua. He's marching around the Jericho walls. He's got the big old shield, the big old muscles. He's this big, burly guy. But do you know that that's a total figment of our imagination? Do you know the Bible never? Look it. Look it up. God never ascribes this description to Joshua. Do you know what description we do find of Joshua? This is, this is amazing. The only description the Bible gives of Joshua is a humble servant. We think of Joshua. It's Joshua. It doesn't take a big, strong, strapping man. I'm glad. That's not me. It takes a humble servant through which God can use a man to do God's will. And so Joshua served Israel under Moses. Joshua fought in the battle. Joshua stepped up as a leader and led Israel. Not because he was a big, bad, burly boy. It was because he was a man who was willing to allow God full control of his life. And with that assurance, with the assurance that it wasn't Joshua, but it was God through Joshua, Joshua was resolute. And so if this is the case, if that's who Joshua was, if Joshua was just a humble man, and if Joshua truly was nothing special at all, then men, the question is this, why can't you be a Joshua? Looking at you, none of you look 17 foot tall and 6 foot wide. Okay? None of you look super big, strapping, and strong. None of you are the Schwarzenegger. But that's not what's required. It only takes a humble man. It only takes a man who will be humble enough to say, God, I can't do this, but you can. That's all it takes to be a mighty man. And that's what he's calling each of us to do. So why can't you? In this pivotal moment in our country, in this pivotal crossroads in our church and in our families, why can't you be the Joshua. Why can't you be the resolute man who stands and say, I will do it. I will be God's man. We all know that Joshua's infamous uh, saying, right? He's known for it. We, we read it this month in our book. Choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Now, what I would like to claim this morning is that the reason that Joshua was so resolute, right? We talked about this a few minutes ago. The reason he was so resolute, so certain, so absolutely positive, we will serve the Lord. God will provide. God will direct our paths. God will win this victory. The reason Joshua was so resolute is because of the promises that we find in the first chapter of Joshua. And that's what we're going to look at today, Joshua chapter 1. Because of the promises God gives Joshua in the first chapter, Joshua will go on and hold on to those promises with resoluteness through Jericho walls, through Achan, through the Jordan, through all the battles he faces. He would hold God's promises from that first chapter. And it made him resolute. It made him certain in what God would do. And for 24 chapters, we read of Joshua with this this resoluteness. And so what I'd like to give us today is this. We too have been given the promises of God. Joshua chapter 1 may not have been written to Mike and Eric and Jacob and CJ, but the words of Jesus, the words of the New Testament were written to you. They were for your use. They're promises to the believer. And so Joshua had his promises. We have ours. And so let's be resolute men. And so I'm going to give us three things today. We're going to do ABC. We're going to do ABC. Being a resolute man is as easy as A, B, C. And so A, first thing you have to do is arise. Arise. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over the Jordan, thou and all the people, unto this land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. The first thing you have to do if you want to be a resolute man, The first requirement, the first step to being a resolute man is to arise, arise. God tells Joshua, as bad as things are, as bad as things are probably going to get in 2021 or whatever your Joshua lived in, as bad as things are probably going to get, now is not the time to sulk. Now is not the time to pout. Now is not the time to walk with your head hung low. Now is not the time to throw in the towel. It's not the time to be discouraged or downtrodden. Joshua, even though Moses and his entire generation have died and those things have passed away, although everything you have ever known about serving the Lord is now gone and behind you, and all that lies ahead is uncertain, Joshua, now is the time to arise and go. Now is the time to do something. Now is the time to be a man, to take a stand, to arise and go. Right now, at this crossroads, now is the time to arise and go. And the reason that Joshua was resolute enough to obey and to arise and go was because of the promises provided by God, right? Notice what God tells Joshua will happen if he will arise and go. The land that will be given unto them everywhere, their foot walks, they'll be given. No man shall be able to stand against them. God will be with them. God will not fail or forsake them. With assurances like this, get get the formula here. God says, do this. And everywhere you go, you'll win. Everyone you face, you'll defeat everything you do. It's yours. Victory is yours. With promises like that, how could you not move forward? With assurances like that, it's 100% guarantee. How could you not arise? It's certain. It's logical to do it because God has said this. And yet, as we said earlier, do we realize that to us, the promises are just as certain as to Joshua? 
We have just as absolute of assurances and promises provided from God as Joshua did in in chapter 1. Can I tell you that just as much as it's wrong to exploit the promises of God, it's also just as equally wrong to deny the promises of God. If you've been in our Steadfast Studies class, uh, we use this verse a lot, and it really has just hit home with me this year. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8 says this, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto a life of godliness, whereby are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises. God promises to Joshua, I will give you victory. Everywhere your foot goes, you'll have that land. You will defeat all of your foes. Jesus says to us, I will give you all things pertaining to life and godliness. I will give you exceedingly great precious promises. He has given us everything we need. He's given us his exceedingly great promises. He wants us to believe them, to claim them, and to arise and go. Over and over and over and over again, Jesus says... Ask in my name and I'll give it. 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 I will be there for you always. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You can move mountains and cast them. He gives us all these promises. All of the might and all the power and all of his resources are at our disposal to be what he's called us to be. And so men, is it not logical that we arise? Is it not Obvious that the thing to do is believe God, stand, and do His work. This is the formula, guys. We can't. He never said we could. He can. He always said He would. If we will arise, live godly lives, and hold God to His word according to His promises, we can be just as confident as Joshua entering the Canaan conquest. We can be just as assured at this crossroads as Joshua was. Our confidence, our resoluteness, our willingness to arise is based upon what God has said he will do and not our ability. The fact is that if you're waiting on a time to arise, you're never going to arise. If you're waiting on you to get your life together, your act together, you're never going to arise. If you're waiting on your country to be in better shape, if you're waiting for the church to have your back, you're never going to arise. If you're waiting to hear a booming voice that says, Jacob, this is God, arise! You're never going to hear that. You're never going to arise. All the while that we're waiting, our country and our family and our church are all going down the tube because we're busy waiting for the perfect time to arise when God tells Joshua, arise! Now is the time to arise! Like Joshua, God has promised us victory. He's promised us that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He's promised us that greater is he than he is who is greater is he who is in us than he is who is in the world. Easy for me to say. He has told us not to fear what man can do to us. That anything that we ask in his name will be given unto us. And just like Joshua, we have everything. Listen, guys, we have everything in our tool belt that we could ever need for the job that God has called us to. All that's left to do is to arise. We need to arise, go, be a doer, and be a goer. We need to be a man. Listen, we all know Bible. We all read Bible. We all hear Bible. But this is what the Bible says. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, only yourselves. 
Listen, if you want a fascinating study, go through your Bible and look at the difference between hearers and doers. Fascinating study that really all of Christianity boils down to. It's what will be judged on the final day. Hearers and doers. Men. He has called us to be a doer of his word. Arise. Stand. Do. Enough talk. Enough wasting time. Arise. Now is our time. What neglect. What a waste of a life. What a waste of God's promises. What a pitiful excuse we are for men. We talk about a lot of things. We have a lot of excuses. But how many of us are passive as we fail to take a stand and to arise and go? Listen, guys, this isn't just what God is calling us to here. It's not just another check off on your wife's honey to-do list. This isn't equated to cleaning the gutters, guys. There's a lot at stake here. Our families, our church, our country. It's going under. There's a lot at stake here. This is too important to sit on the sidelines. This is too important to wait until the show's over. Wait till the game's over, right? Now is the time to arise. We are, listen to this, we are God's solution to the problem. Did you catch that? We are God's solution to the problem. We say someone else will go, someone else will take a stand, and yet God has commanded us, me, to arise and go. I want you to read this next slide with me out loud. I want you to place your name where it says your name. The Lord spake unto Josh, saying, Arise and go. So that brings us to B. If you want to be a resolute man, a man who arises and says, I will be a mighty man, I will do the will of God. You have to arise, but B, you have to be strong. Notice what God says to Joshua. I love this first chapter. God says, Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law. Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid. Neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. This is possibly the most famous phrase that is found in the first chapter of Joshua, right? We, we, hear, we see this on, on calendars and, and art. We see this everywhere. Be strong. Be of good courage. But I want you to imagine for a second, right? So we're at an intersection here. Joshua's like, what are we going to do next? I want you to imagine God taps Joshua on the shoulder and God says, Joshua, it's going to take $10 trillion to do what I'm calling you to do. Now, arise and go. Joshua starts, starts to panic a little bit, right? He starts to sweat. $10 trillion? I don't have $10 trillion. I don't have $10. He's patting his robe pockets, right? Trying to look for $10. He doesn't even have $10, let alone $10 trillion. And that's what God has said will be required in order to conquer Canaan. Joshua in and of himself, in his might, in his ability, in his resources, did not have what it would take to do what God was calling him to do. And for that reason, Joshua easily could have been weak, scared, discouraged. Because he didn't have in himself to do, have what it would take to do what needed to be done. And on top of the stigma of the stiff-necked people of Israel, Joshua had a generation of people who had been traveling their whole lives, right? They didn't have homes, they didn't have resources, they didn't have weapons, they didn't have training. And he's told to go defeat all these armies who have fortresses and weapons and kings and all of these things. And do you know that Joshua will go on to conquer 31 nations, 31 armed people, nations, kings, people, each of whom 
had everything at their disposal. And knowing all that lied ahead, and knowing how incapable, and knowing how ill-equipped Joshua was, God speaks to Joshua three times in nine verses, and he says, Be strong and of good courage. Only be thou strong and very courageous. Have I not commanded thee be strong and of good courage? Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. Some commentators, I don't know if this is true or not, some commentators speculate that Joshua actually was a very weak and non-confident man. And so upon his calling, God tried to build him up. Be strong, be courageous, because that was not who Joshua was. We would never know that by reading the book of Joshua. Picture Joshua, though, being as weak as the men we see around us in church today. Can we agree there are weak men in church today? There are weak men in St. Hilfield Baptist Church today. Imagine Joshua getting his feelings hurt over something the preacher says. Doesn't add up. Imagine Joshua getting busy with his own hobbies and not coming to church, not being involved, not serving the Lord. Consider Joshua sitting with his arms crossed because... Things weren't to his preference or liking. Think about Joshua being afraid of the things going on in this world. It's inconceivable. That that does not, there's a disconnect in our mind. You can't picture the Joshua we read of doing these things. Doesn't fit and it doesn't make sense. Why? Because Joshua was God's man. Joshua was strong in the Lord. He was courageous in the Lord. Able to do what was right even when it's difficult. Able to withstand the pressures and problems of this life. Guys, let me be frank with you this morning. We are greatly missing men who are strong in the Lord. We are desperately missing men who are strong in the Lord. If I were to walk up to any of you today, and I were to punch you in the arm and tell you, you're a weak, wimpy weakling, whether you'd admit it or not, you'd probably laugh at me, but then after that, whether you'd admit it or not, if I did that, you would be offended. I just insulted your manhood, your manliness. Is that true? And yet, as offended as we get at that, why are we so acceptable of being weak in the Lord? Do we get that being strong and courageous in the Lord is more important than being strong in this world? Why are we not offended by the weakness we see among us? It's it's totally acceptable in the church today to be a weak man, a weak Christian man. God's plan was for man to have the strength of God within him. It was, man, it was God who called man to be strong enough to bear the weights of this world, the worries of this world. It is man who is strong enough to endure the enemy's attacks. It is man who bears the strength to believe God and to act upon his word. It is man who is called to be the stronger vessel and lead spiritually. Man called to be strong and courageous. Where are the men who are strong in God? That's my question. Where have they gone? Not because of their might and ability, not because of what they can do, but because of the God who has enabled them with his strength. God here commands Joshua, be strong. I command you, be strong. Because that's the only way we're going to get through this. That's the only way we're going to make it. Are you, ask yourselves, am I strong in the Lord? Am I a mighty man, a force to be reckoned with? But then get the second part here. God comes to Joshua and says, be strong. But then he says, be courageous. It's very interesting. If you look up the the original text here in the Hebrew, the word courageous actually means 
strong with resolution, which is so great because we're talking about being resolute. So that's just beautiful. No one cares, but I do. It, it's, it's beautiful. Promise me. Trust me. It's beautiful. So because of my strength within you, God says, do not fear anything. Because I will not fail you or forsake you, and because the battle's already promised in your favor, have courage! Be strong, but then be strong with resolution. Do we get the difference? Be strong, but then be strong with resolution of God's strength. Charge ahead with confidence. Take the battlefield with faith. The battle is won. Joshua, be strong and strong. Be strong and courageous. Be strong with resolution of my strength within you. Men, when sickness strikes our nation, be strong and courageous. When the government stands against righteousness, be strong and courageous. When you are persecuted for your faith, be strong and courageous. When the church crumbles, be strong and courageous. When the enemy prevails and darkness dominates, do not be afraid, do not cower, do not relent, do not back down, but be strong and courageous. Be strong and strong. Be strong with a courageous resolution. In nine verses, God comes to Joshua three times and says, Be strong and courageous. And do you know that beautifully, we find the command to be strong three times in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Watch ye stand fast in the faith. Quit ye like men. Be strong. Ephesians 6.10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. 2 Timothy 2.1, thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We are called to be strong. I'm so sick. I'm so disgusted by weak men in the church. I think every one of us would scoff at a feminine man who wants to be a leader in a church. Maybe just I would. We don't want feminine leaders. Can we agree? That's not the place. Men are not called to be feminine. Amen? Okay, just just checking. Yet, why are we okay with weak men as Christians? If you read the Bible, if you read a Christian as what God has called us to be, that actually doesn't make sense. There's no such thing, according to God, as a weak Christian man. There's no such thing. That's made up in our mind. God only calls us to be strong, courageous Christian men. I want you to read this next slide with me. Josh, be strong and strong. Be strong and courageous. Be strong with resolution. That brings us to C. If you want to be a resolute man, if you want to be a man who is solid upon what God has called you to do, the third thing you have to do is commit to the Lord. It's honestly kind of surprising this last command that, that God gives to Joshua. Because Joshua was this great military phenomenon, right? He, he, he was over millions of people and he just, he was a great military leader. And there have been hundreds, maybe even thousands of books written on Joshua's military leadership and on him as a leader. And yet for all of his success and for all the feats that are equivalent to a fighting force known as known, the best fighting force known to man, there was a key. There, there was a secret to his sauce of success, if you will. 
When we look at military forces today, right, if we look at America's army versus another country's army, we compare weaponry or numerics, right, how many men they have, how many weapons they have, how big their bombs are, right? That's how we equate military might. And yet Joshua had none of these things. He had less people. He had no weapons. He had nothing. And yet he is the best military force known to man. I mean, still today, they model things after Joshua and what he did. They write books after books upon his military leadership. Yet he had a secret to his success. Men are infamous for being unwilling to admit we need help. Are, am I alone? Is it, men are infamous. We all... Now you won't admit you need help, See, so you won't raise your hand. We are infamous for not being willing to admit we need help. If we're lost, guess who's not asking for directions? If we get an Ikea package, guess who's not reading the instructions? We are infamous for not being willing to ask for help or admit we cannot do it ourselves. But do you know that this is actually pride, thinking that we can? Do you know, I I was told this, I thought this was really fascinating. Do you know there's actually a meter, a way to measure pride? Like, you, you, you know, plug it into the wall and you put your tongue on it. It's like, beep, 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 pride, whoa, way too much. There's, a, there's an actual meter. There's a way to measure pride. And the way that you can measure pride is this. It is how much time it takes for you to admit you cannot and to find someone who can. Can. That's how you measure pride. How long do I go before I admit I can't do it, but I know who can or I'll find someone who can? That's how we measure pride. And like most of us, Joshua here was facing an impossible, impossible, overwhelming task. Something so large, something so great, that no matter how hard he may try, no matter how much effort he may give, Joshua could not do what needed to be done in and of himself. And it's for this very reason that God commands Joshua very, very clearly to seek the one who had the answers. Joshua, humble servant, admit you cannot. Be humble, not prideful. Joshua cannot do it. Checking his pants pockets doesn't have the 10 trillion, right? He cannot do it. But seek constantly. Be committed to seeking the one who can and will. Notice what God tells Joshua in verses 7 through 8. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate thereon day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written within. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and then thou shalt have good success. The only single explanation, the only way that Joshua and Israel were able to succeed and be prosperous in all that they did was by a complete and utter dependence upon God. By getting their meter down to zero. No pride here. Can't do it. Admitting up front. Cannot do it. Joshua was a humble servant who was utterly aware that he was utterly dependent upon God to deliver him. Joshua had to admit that he did not have the answers, but he could trust in the one who did. And we find this constantly, over and over, all through the book of Joshua. We find continually this commitment 
in Joshua's life. Over and over and over again, we see him seeking the Lord, going to the Lord, pleading with the Lord in humility, in absolute awareness that he could not do what needed done. Joshua committed his ways to the Lord. So maybe you're thinking, what's the big deal? I know we're probably supposed to read the Bible. I know it's kind of probably important, sort of, but I'm sure God loves me. And I'm sure just the same, if I do or if I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't have to be so committed to it. It's not that big of a deal. I'm doing just fine. Well, I'm glad you asked. Because actually, the book of Joshua gives us a perfect contrast here of what that looks like, right? We're going to find here in Joshua chapter 7 exactly what it looks like for a man who is casual with God's word compared to Joshua who was committed to God's word. And so for that reason, the word of God would be declared to all the people, uh, telling them what God's will would be, right? So back then they didn't have the, the Bible necessarily to read like we do. And so Joshua would come and say, thus saith God. And all men knew because everyone's standing there. Look at you. You heard the same thing I heard. We all are on the same page here. And so we find in chapter 7 that there are two men, two characters that offer a contrast of how they handle God's word. In Joshua chapter 6, God does a mighty work and he leads Joshua and Israel through the battle of Jericho, right? No one knows that song. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Yes, okay, thank you. Uh, so the walls come crumbling down, right? Typically, we get so caught up in this cool story of marching and trumpets and crumbling walls that we may overlook verses 18 through 19. And apparently there's a man in the country who wasn't listening so keenly to these verses. And ye, in any wise, keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed. When ye take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel a curse, and trouble it, but all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord, they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Can we all admit this is pretty straightforward? You don't need a degree in Hebrew to understand what this says. No touchy. No touchy. The gold, the silver, no touchy. Do not touch. Not yours. Off limits. Stay away. Red flag. Flashing lights. Straightforward. Can we agree? There's not a lot of confusion here. And yet, there was a man in Israel who was casual with the words of God. He wasn't so committed to what God said. This man was self-centered. He was self-willed. This man was caught up in himself. He thought he knew better than God. This man thought that God wouldn't mind. Maybe he wouldn't even notice. There was a man who was prideful. There was a man who thought he knew better than God. His name was Achan. And he took gold and he took silver that God commanded not to be taken. And because of Achan's selfishness, because he thought he knew best, because he was self-centered and because he did what he wanted and what felt good and right to himself, what he thought was acceptable, because he was casual with God's word, instead of clearly committing to what God had said, Achan would pay the price of his life, the life of his family, and ultimately the humiliation of his nation. Achan's sin was taking the gold. But the reason that he sinned was because he was casual with God's word. Did you catch that? His sin was taking the silver and gold. The reason he sinned was because he was casual 
did not take seriously, did not hold up in high esteem the words of God. David wrote, another mighty man, I've kept thy word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Men, do you want to know how you stop sinning? Men, do you want to know how you overcome sin in your life? Men, do you want to know how sin doesn't hold you captive anymore? Hide God's word in your heart. Commit your ways to the words of God. Do not be casual with his words, but absorb his words. I have no doubt that there are men here who have sin problems. I have no doubt that there are men here who are plagued and pummeled by desires and flesh daily. And some of us are losing that battle more than we're winning that battle. But I'd like to challenge you today that if you want to overcome sin in your life, it starts with the word of God. Instead of hiding sins in your tent like Achan, hide God's word in your heart and you will overcome. When you allow God's word to so penetrate your life that it dwells in your heart, it will clean you. It will exterminate the sins from your life. If we were all to be honest, to some degree, all of us here are casual with God's word. Can we be frank enough to say that? All of us, every one of us, including myself, all of us are casual in some way or another with God's word. We may deny it, we may hide it. And as a result, just like Achan, not only is our life suffering, not only are our families suffering, not only is the church suffering, but look, guys, our nation's a wreck. The country is suffering. We want our families to be saved and serve the Lord. We want our church to be what God wants it to be. We want so badly for our nation to be godly and once again choose right over wrong. But do we recognize it starts with us? How highly are you committed to God's word? Just like God promised in Joshua 6, we are seeing a curse upon our families, churches, and nation because we are not committed, but we are casual with God's word. When we're casual with reading God's word, when we're casual with the proper interpretation of God's word, when we're casual with relying upon God's word in our lives, we see destruction follow. The fall of families, churches, and country, and like Achan, the only explanation, the true underlying reason that we are casual with God's word is because we believe we can do it without God. We lack the utter dependence that Joshua had. We lack the emptiness of ourselves and the desire to be filled with God. We are selfish, we are self-centered, and we want our ways over God's ways. But thank goodness there was another example for Israel to follow besides Achan. Achan was casual with God's word and it led to destruction. It led to what we see in 2020. But Joshua was committed to God's word and it changed everything. Do you recognize that as we read the Bible, commitment to God's word is a marker. It's, It's an identifier of mighty men. Think of David. Think of all the Psalms he wrote. David is a mighty man. Joshua is a mighty man. Commitment to God's word marks you. It identifies you as a mighty man. It's great up until this point that we have been challenged to arise and take a stand. It's wonderful that we've been convinced to be strong and courageous, but all of that is useless unless we are committed to doing things God's way. If we truly grasp just how much of an impossibility lies before us, the only conclusion that we can summarize, it's going to take God to do it. And if we cannot, and if he can, and he said he would, how do you think God's going to show us? It's through his word. Joshua knew that he had an absolute impossible task ahead. He was a humble servant who was utterly aware that he himself could not conquer Canaan. He could not defeat the enemies. He could not take the land. And from this understanding that he could not, that he was incapable, Joshua committed 
his ways to the Lord. Only the words of the Lord would direct in the right directions. Do not turn from the left or the right. Only the words of the Lord would guide him on which way to go. Only the words of the Lord could ensure him prosperity and success. Notice what God says to Joshua here. God tells Joshua to observe the law, observe the laws of God, know what it says, know what it does not say, be a student of the law, observe all that God has said, because you're going to need every last word of it. Obey all that God has said within the laws. Make sure you're living a holy and a pure and an upright life according to all that God has commanded and obtain the words of God. Keep them on your mind day and night. Don't turn from the left to right, God says, but obtain, keep them close and near. And if you do, Joshua, if you observe, if you obey, and if you obtain my words... The promise is prosperity, and the promise is success. Over the past several months, I have been challenged by by a mentor of mine and some friends. I've been challenged with this question over and over, and I'd like to pose it to you guys today. This, again, is another meter for how mighty of a man you are, how utterly dependent you are, how prideful you are. I'd like to ask you this question. How is your time in the Word? I've been challenged with that. Over and over, I've been asked this question in the last several months. How is your time in the Word? I'm not asking how many chapters you read. I'm not asking how much time you spend. I'm not even asking how much you know. I'm asking, how is your time in the Word? Are you observing everything God has written? Are you truly observing it with a precision and a detail in your life as if it depends upon it? Are you obeying every word, observing and obeying and moving up and being challenged and changed, being fine-tuned and made into a new creation by God's word? Are you obtaining the words of God? Do you keep them on your mind continually day and night? Do you meditate upon them, thinking about them, cherishing them, repeating them to yourselves? Are you spending time in his word, getting to know him, receiving the words, the directions, the commitment from him? How is your time in the Word? Be frank with yourselves. Be completely and brutally honest. How is your time in the Word? No matter how long you've been saved or how much you know or don't know about the Bible, there is always room to improve. There's always room to observe, obey, and obtain more of God's Word. How's your time in the Word? Are you casual like Achan? Are you prideful? Are you self-seeking and selfish and self-centered, believing that you can do it without God? Are you casual? Or are you committed Like Joshua. The word of God will not depart out of mouth, but I will meditate day and night so that I can observe and do all that is written therein. Men, there's a lot on the line here. Can we agree there is a lot on the line here? We are facing a turning point. We're facing that crossroads, a line in the sand. And there's too much writing on the line, and it's too overwhelming. And the only way that we can endure is to be resolute. Be strong and solid and sure and unmoving and committed. The enemy on every side is trying to convince you you can't. He's trying to persuade you, distract you, and pull you under. Our opponents will not relent. They will not fight fair. They will not give us a break. But if we will arise and go, if we will be strong and courageous, if we will commit our ways to the Lord, then we too can be resolute and conquer. Because no longer are we standing upon our strength, no longer are we standing upon our calling, no longer are we standing upon our footing, no longer are we relying upon our understanding and will and way, 
though we are solid, steadfast, unmovable, and resolute in him. We can be resolute because our God has told us to arise. He's given us his strength and courage, and he's given us his word to commit to. Will we be a resolute man? Will we for our wives, for our children, for our church, for our country, for the orphans, for the widows? Will we arise a mighty man and be resolute, be a force to be reckoned with? That's the challenge today. These are the requirements to be resolute. As you see, the name of our lesson is Stronger Vessel. Uh, if I'm real honest, um, as Eric was sharing, uh, this was kind of convicting to me. I think you guys will see why here in a second. But uh, just going to look at one verse of Scripture. going to be kind of a simple lesson, but uh, I, ho- I hope it will really, uh, really speak to us in a mighty way. So I think I, I, think I will go ahead and uh, read the verse if you, uh, if you have your phone or Bible, whatever you're using there, First Peter 3, 7, it says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. And uh, really, that's a powerful verse. And um, so I would like to, uh, the, the thought come to my mind, uh, I'd like to kind of use this carnal illustration for a moment. But, um, you know, I, I, know I'm, I know I'm the old man, but uh, I've, it's, it's a very interesting thing to me. Um, and, and, you know, with CJ and with uh, Josh and with Jacob and, and, and with and all of the, the young guys that I get to work around, and even, even where I'm at work, um, you guys know that picture that you see of um, the, the boy who is self-centered and is um, not responsible and, and is really just a kid, and, and then they get a job, and then they get a house payment, <laughs> and then they have a wife, and then they have a kid, and, and all of a sudden that boy turns into a man. And that boy who could only think of, what can I do for myself, is all of a sudden um, taking his paycheck and giving it to somebody else. I mean, that's, you know, as a, as a boy, I, I can remember, you know, I was a little bit older when I got married. But I can remember when I was, I can remember when I was a kid, man, I was making a lot of money. It was all for me. It was all for me. I mean, if I wanted to just go blow it on, you know, a, a race car, whatever I wanted to buy... I didn't, and all of a sudden it came to the point where I was taking all of my money and giving it to somebody else. I mean, I didn't get anything out of it. I just gave it to somebody else. I'm, I'm paying electric bills and house payments and buying groceries and all that stuff mom and dad's supposed to be doing, right? And it, it, but my point is, it changed me. It changed all of us. And it's an interesting thing, myself, getting to watch all of the boys who... Once they receive that responsibility, it changes them. And so that, that's kind of a carnal illustration. If we look at the scripture, um, now being spiritual, if, if we understand this in context, uh, what this scripture is telling us is that husbands uh, are to dwell with their wives according to knowledge. 
Now, if we really understand what that scripture means, it, it's quite a, actually quite in-depth. Uh, and if you're married, you will understand how in-depth that is. Um, it's saying, understand your wife. What, what, what a, what a, what a uh, uh, exhortation from the Lord, understand your wife. But literally that is what it is saying. It is saying, uh, understand her weaknesses, understand her struggles, understand the things she's not good at, understand where she needs you. Uh, understand your wife, live with her and understand her and learn her. And I know it's an ongoing uh, joke that we don't understand our wives and and, um, you know, I, no one struggles that more than I do. So I get that. But this literally is telling us to, to learn them, to understand them, to, to get who they are. So that's the context of this scripture. But I would like to, and I don't, I don't think it will be harmful to the text. I would like to, if you guys would allow me, I would like to substitute uh, for husbands, I would like to substitute men. And... Uh, for wife, I would like to substitute women. Uh, if you allow me that little bit of liberty. Now, uh, again, we understand that the text uh, in context is talking about the person that you're married to. But for our ministry today, I would like to talk about, um, likewise ye men, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the women. So, um, those of you that go to Sand Hill will understand why this was quite convicting to me. It, it was actually, as the more I thought about it, I thought, boy, you know, you probably need this lesson more than anybody else. Uh, but, guys, what I, want us to, what I want us to get out of this is God designed men differently than women, right? And I have been uh, the first one to criticize their emotionism and, you know, their irrationalism and, and all of the different things that, you know, is easy to find fault with as men. And we can all be here. We can kind of make fun of the women and everything else. But here's what, here's what kind of came down to me as I understood this text. That's how God designed them. Have you guys ever thought about that? That's how God designed them. God... God did not design a woman to be strong and courageous and leading and, and taking the charge and, and doing all of those things. God designed the woman uh, to nurture and to, um, to take care of the home and to do all the things that they do. And, and this might sound a little bit um, uh, ancient or whatever in the day that we live in. But I believe that the, a lot of the reason that we have a lot of the problems we do is because women are trying to do things that women were never designed to do, right? And, and it comes out in uh, all of this emotion and all the things that we see. So, so number one, uh, the, first, the first thing I would like for us to really to sink into us is understanding our role. Understanding our role. Um, guys, we don't have the same role as women, we can't say, um, you know, we, we can point fingers all day and criticize and, and, and put them down because, you know, maybe they're not thinking logically, maybe they're thinking emotionally, maybe they're all the things that and I have done that a lot uh, and still do that in all honesty. But what does scripture really begin to speak to me is I need to understand the woman. And, and, and again, broadening this text out a little bit, not only my wife. But sisters in the church, uh, other women, um, guys, their job is not the same as ours. Inside the church, their job is not the same as ours. In the home, their job is not the same as ours. We are to be strong, uh, stable, 
uh, courageous, um, unmoving. Um, that's what God designed us to do. We're supposed to be raising up young men and setting examples before them to be strong and unwavering and, and stable. And listen, guys, the truth is sometimes the women are going to be all over the place, right? They're going to be all over the place. They're going to, you know, they're going to totally overreact. They're going to be totally emotional. They're going to be totally illogical, totally irrational. Um, we can criticize. We can uh, say it's their fault. Or we could say, you know what? When she's falling apart, my role is to be steadfast, right? And so, uh, so our role is, is to be the leader, to be um, the, the man, the head in the church, in the family, in society. And uh, again, it's easy to criticize the woman, but um, here's kind of what I started thinking as I began to take this apart myself, because I've been really big on criticizing uh, all of the emotionism. Um, is, is anybody see what I'm saying with this? Are we not sort of criticizing God when we're criticizing women? In other words, if, we, if God designed the woman to be that way, um, you know, um, it annoys me sometimes when women try to think with their emotions and there's no logic whatsoever behind it. But to be real honest, when I was a little boy, I wanted a woman to nurture me. She was thinking with her emotions. She was thinking with her feelings to take care of me. If you, if you watch today, you know, the, the women, you know, all of us here that, you know, our, our dads or grandpas or whatever, uh, or, or uncles, uh, Lucas, we, we love them very, very genuinely. Can you see that the way we love is not the same as the way they love? Look at, the way a, look at the way a woman treats a little child, and look at the way we do. I mean, I usually smack them around and throw them upside down, right? And, and they're all just, you know, it's a, it's a different thing. So my point is, God designed them for a whole different purpose, a whole different role. And our role is to be men and not to be um, finding fault, criticizing, not... not uh, um, and, and in saying that, I want to make sure I don't mislead you guys. Sometimes in saying that... And I have to do this in my home. Sometimes in saying that, um, when my wife is absolutely just falling apart, my job is to say, listen, honey, that's not right. That, that, that's not reality. This is reality. And, and draw her back. So I don't want to mis be misunderstood into saying we go along with their, their um, emotional thinking. But I do want it to be clear, when they're falling apart, my job is not to jump in on that. My job is to be the leader of the home. My role is to lead my wife, to lead other women. Uh, it was stability. And I believe that in the day we're living in, in the church, in the country, in the family, I believe that women need someone to be rock solid. When the, when the country's falling apart, we don't need to be freaking out. When the church is falling apart, we don't need to be, what are we going to do? Whenever, you know, when the home is unstable, there's sickness, we don't, we need to say, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right and be strong and steadfast and not uh, uh, overcome with all the emotions that, that, um, that come our way. So women are designed to nurture. Um, we are to understand them and to be strong and when we really understand our role that God has laid, given us, it, it, uh, when we get this clear, it lays the weight squarely on us to lead. And I, and I want us to get that. At home, in the church, and everything that we do, um, pointing fingers, accusing, finding fault with the women, that's not helpful. 
You know what is helpful? To be a man. To be a man. To lead, to be strong, to go forward. So, uh, so that being understood, uh, number two, uh, we need some unselfish strength. Now, as again, as I thought about this, uh, back to our young man who is uh, not married, has no responsibilities or whatever. Um, but, but to be real honest, when I look at myself in the mirror, when I, when I look at all of you guys, you know, some of you guys are young or some of you guys are older. I'm probably the oldest person here. When, when we look, all of us are real, real honest. And I, and I would just, I'll be with Eric, I'll just be real honest about this. Men are by nature very selfish. That's kind of just the way we are. We think about, I do, I think about me. I think about what I can buy with my money. I think about what I can do that I enjoy. I think about how we can spend time on what I want to do. Uh, We are kind of by nature selfish beings. It almost seems like to me sometimes the women, uh, because if you sometimes if you look at even young girls, teenagers and whatnot, they're not quite as, uh, they're they're sometimes more at at giving to someone else or helping someone else. Um, I myself, I like to just take care of Gary. I like to spend money on Gary. I like to do the things Gary likes to do, right? But if I want to be a man of God, I have to stop, I have to change that and say, I would rather give it to my children. I would rather give it to my wife. I'd rather do what they want to do than to do what I want to do. I would rather sacrifice uh, to, to give them what they want. So unselfish strength. Number two, unselfish strength. <clears throat> um, we've been talking about being mighty men. We need to be strong. But sometimes that looks like um, giving others what they need. And again, uh, back uh, allowing me a little liberty, men and women, not just husbands and wives, uh, sometimes we're the ones that have to sacrifice what we want. Um, Do you guys see where that's a a mark of maturity? Do you guys see where that's a mark of of being a leader? Uh, A a good leader doesn't say we're going to do things the way I want. A good leader says it doesn't really matter what I want, what's best for everybody. Um, And and sometimes a good leader says um, not what you want, but what is actually good for you. Uh, So our role is to lead and to be strong. um, and, And we are to do that with unselfish strength, which looks like, when, when, again, when they're falling apart, we are not thinking, well, how can I, how can I get her to shut up so I, can, so I can have a better day? We're thinking about how can I do what needs to be done for my family, for my wife, and for, and for the women that are um, around me. So, so we don't get to think of our needs. Can we all just admit that's not easy? <laughs> Can we just all admit, uh, if you're, if, you know, I think all of us are kind of in the same category, but I think as men, um, we first think about ourselves. If we want to be mighty men of God, we're going to have to stop thinking about my needs and what I want and what I can get out of it and start thinking more of how do I uh, take care of my wife? How do I take care of the sisters in the church? How do I take care of others around me? Um, that is a sign of maturity. We sacrifice our comfort for them. Um, when they are irrational, we are stable. And, and I don't want to just beat a dead horse, but, um, uh, but I, I do think that's a point worth um, making. Um, and, and again, probably nobody here has more trouble with that than I do. When, when people become very emotional and their brain shuts down and logic no longer works, I can, like Josh said, I can be very impatient with that. I, I, can, just, I can just say, that's dumb, and I don't feel like dealing with it. But what we really need to say is, we're going to lead the way God wants us to lead, and we're not going to get caught up in the, in the, the drama and the emotion of, of the moment. 
So, and, and um, I, I believe this, I, I, I don't know if we had all the sisters here, we had all of our wives, or I don't know if they would openly admit it with their mouth, but I believe, I believe with all my heart, because I believe this is God's design, again our role, I believe that women long for men that are stable. That don't get caught up in the drama, that don't get caught up in the emotion, that don't get caught up in the irrational. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes with my wife, um, she'll be just... You know, it's the end of the world and, and she's just having a nuclear meltdown. And I will, if I can get myself out of the way and I can give her the facts, sometimes that irritates her. But usually she comes around and it's like, thank you. Brought me back to reality. You brought me back to, I, I was, I was, you know, at the, at the moment they usually don't acknowledge it. But later on they're like, you know, and I believe that there's something inside of women that they want someone that is stable that is steadfast, that is, that is thinking clear, that will lead them. And, and again, if, uh, if a tragedy strikes, if something bad happens in the home, you know, you lose your job, you have a bad report from the doctor, you, something happens to your kids, your wife might just absolutely lose it. You know what she wants you to do? Steadfast. God's going to take care of us. We're going to do what God wants, and we're going to get through this. And so, guys, that's our role. That's our job. We have to uh, do that with unselfish strength and... We should never say, um, if she would. If she'd just think right, we wouldn't have these problems. If she'd just, if she'd just be like me, we wouldn't have these problems. If she would, you know, she'd, if she'd respond to me, we wouldn't have these problems. If, she, if she'd recognize how great I am, we wouldn't have these problems. Right? We should never say that. We should realize God designed her differently than he designed us. And, and again, not only with my wife, but with the sisters in the church and, and family and everything else, um, we should say, my job is to lead them, and their role is different than my role. <clears throat> so number three... Uh, along with our understanding of what our role is and along with our unselfish strength, uh, we need an unwavering commitment, an unwavering commitment. I know Josh has already spoke on that, um, but when life gets hard, it's my job to be stable. And, and I, I know this is a little redundant, we kind of keep repeating it, but life is going to get hard. And, and for you younger guys that are here, uh, maybe you haven't faced everything uh, that life can throw at you, but can I just assure you, if the Lord doesn't come back, and, and, and all four of you young guys that are sitting here, as, as you're going to face some hard things. You're, you're going to face some, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult. Uh, family's going to be hard, marriage is going to be hard. Um, I, I love my wife, I, I believe she's the greatest woman in the world, I, I, I absolutely adore her. But if I'm real honest, marriage is hard. Marriage is sometimes very, very hard. And, and you know, if, if you haven't experienced that yet, just wait. <laughs> you, you will. It gets hard. It gets sometimes very, very difficult. But in those hard moments when, when everything seems to be falling apart, your job is to be stable and to lead your home and to assure her it's going to be all right. And, and if she's ready to jump ship, your job is to be stable. And um, so, so when we see that, I think it... it it really clarifies uh, what our, our duty is that we have to do. Uh, when she falls apart, I am committed to hold it together. I am committed to my family, to my church, and to my Lord. So Josh has laid out for us, and we've been trying to do that over the last couple weeks, of how important this is. And if I understand that to my wife first, and then to my family, and then to my church, and then to my country that a lot is resting on me being a mighty man of God. And then when, 
you know, when, when everything falls apart, um, it is my job to be strong. It is my job to be stable. And, and Josh mentioned about the infeminate women, or I'm sorry, infeminate uh, men, and, and how that is acceptable. Um, it bothers me a lot that in the day and age we live in, there are a lot of men who react like women. Right? I, I mean, you know, this election... Um, the, the virus, all of the things that are happening, listen, I'm not happy with a lot of things, but it's not time for me to say I just want to quit living. It's not time for me to say, I'm just, you know, it's time for me to say, you know what, no matter what happens, I'm going to do what God says and I'm going to lead. And um, there are so many men now, and I believe it is because we've got our roles kind of reversed and the women are so emotional and a lot of men have just have just played into that and they they're on the same level as the women as far as their emotions and their drama and their overreacting and their uh, depression and their woe is me and their discouragement. Listen, guys, that's not our role. Our role is to be strong, steadfast, and we don't, we don't play that game. And so um, that is very important. So I am committed to my family, my church, and my Lord. And, and this is what we said at the beginning. I will accept it is my responsibility if things go wrong at home. And we can expand that to, to everything. Uh, but, but guys, the, you know how you'll have the best marriage when you say if things aren't right at home? It's my fault. It's not if I had a different woman. It's not if she would act right. It's not. It's, it's my fault. If the kids aren't what Josh, Josh mentioned about, uh, you know, your kids go astray and they don't want to go to church, they don't want to do everything, and, and we can point fingers and, and we can blame culture, we can blame the schools, we can blame the church, we can blame the pastor... But what about just saying, if my kids didn't turn out right, I had a whole, it was my fault. I, I have a responsibility. I have a duty to that. So, so just, just a real quick, simple lesson I know, um, but I uh, hope it will give us something to think about, to contemplate. Um, we are responsible. Um, it is our job. It is our role. It is our duty. And if we will accept that responsibility, I think things would drastically change. Well, thanks so much for joining us here for our first session of the Sandhill Men's Ministry. We hope that your soul has been stirred and that your faith has been fortified in what God has called each of us to be as a man. Well, Sandhill will be offering a meeting for men who are up for the challenge on a monthly basis. And we would love to have you join us live in person at the Sandhill Ministry Center or live via video call using Google Meets. You, of course, are also welcome to follow up with this ministry as a monthly study that will be made available by video as well. For more information about the Sandhill Men's Ministry or to attend our next meeting or for additional content such as podcasts and Christian content and much more, please visit our website at www.sandhillfwb.com. Thanks again so much for joining us today.